It's my great pleasure to take a moment and introduce uh, Kay and Jeff Lucas uh, and to be able to say that it is a great pleasure, Kay and Jeff, to have you here at Willow Park Church. I've known Jeff from when I was 17 years old. Uh, my first uh, endeavor at 17, 18, preaching at a youth conference and youth event. I was a young evangelist with Youth of Christ and um, was, for some reason, given this opportunity to preach. And uh, Jeff also was present and he was leading all the youth work. And we spent many years, more than I care to remember, working every year at uh, what was uh, Britain's largest uh, Christian conference, having thousands of people gathering every Easter for an event called Spring Harvest. And Jeff was on the leadership team for that event it brought around a fresh renewal in the British church. It was a, a conference that changed much of our thinking and enabled the church on many areas on the, on the brink of extinction to experience God's breath and belief that we have a confidence again in his word and his gospel to engage in our communities. So uh, I've known Jeff and Kay for that many years. We're in the same network of churches back in the UK, and um, it's great to welcome him. So I know you'll be really blessed by what he has to bring, and believe me, what he shares to you is out of uh, a real sense of, of authenticity. He's walked it, he knows it, and um, he's a great writer, and many of us remember the Samson series that we did here, remember that? And we... Um, we got so much inspiration from Jeff's writing um, as pastors from his um, um, book about the life of Samson. So, Jeff, coming up and let's welcome him to Willow Park Church. Thank you. Thank you. Well, thank you very much for that uh, lovely welcome. Hi, everybody. Really good to uh, be with you. It's uh, Great to be reminded, uh, we've, uh, Kay and I, as you've just heard, have known uh, Phil and Michelle for many years. We were involved in youth ministry back in 1837 together, <laughs> and so it's really good to uh, renew friendship uh, together. I'm a little bit confused um, uh, this weekend because I began my day yesterday uh, in Auckland, New Zealand, uh, speaking to pastors there. I'm a British guy living in Colorado who's just come in from New Zealand. <laughs> And I'm wearing cowboy boots. So what does that tell you about my, uh, my great confusion here? But it really is uh, great to have this opportunity. I preached, I preached 15 times in the last 13 days. Uh, I often say to Kay, my wife, I preach so much, I get sick of the sound of my own voice. And she smiled when I said that and said, I understand completely how you feel, which really cheered me up. But it is great to be here. Uh, with you. As Phil's uh, very kindly mentioned, uh, I write, and I never want to overstate the value of my books. That would be cheesy and inappropriate and wrong. I would never do such a thing, but it is God's will that you buy them, so why wrestle? Uh, just kidding. Don't write in. But anyway, uh, how many of you ever struggle with prayer? Anyone here who, like me, you fall asleep sometimes? Anyone ever struggle with prayer? A few people here struggle. How many ever struggle with lying when the preacher asks you an awkward question? Uh, this book, uh, Standing on My Knees, Practical Helps. Prayer isn't boring, it's just that we are sometimes 
in the way that we approach it. And some books on prayer intimidate me and make me feel worse. Anyone understand what I'm talking about there? And so this is Practical Helps on Prayer. And then the theme that we're exploring this weekend, Faith in the Fog, sharing uh, a two-part message with you uh, this weekend, part one obviously tonight, part two tomorrow morning. Uh, Those in the campuses who are seeing this uh, this morning, good morning to you folks at Willow Park South and at Abbey Community and at Creekside, where you can watch part two um, online if you'd like. But Faith in the Fog, this book is so honest it kind of scares me. So um, I would really encourage you, if you've ever struggled with burnout or disappointment or depression, or you know someone that does, uh, get that book. And I've already got a sense right here at Willow Park that you're a church that kind of, you're okay with laughter. Can I just check that? Is everybody, is everybody okay? I, I, I kind of can tell that. I mean, you've got Phil here. And I know from knowing him through the years that he loves humor. I go to some churches where they're a bit nervous of laughter. Normally, I just get to go the once. And um, it's a bit like a gathering of the frozen chosen. You know what I mean? And uh, I I love to laugh. In fact, we're going to laugh together um, over the course of this weekend as we look at some very serious stuff. I think that laughter is medicine and can really help us. I went to one church and a guy came up to me and he said, we don't... We don't have fun here, we have joy. I took one look at him and thought, you have neither. But anyway, if it was joy, it was profoundly deep. But uh, this, this book is called I Was Just Wandering. I was just wandering and uh, using some laughter, some fun, um, uh, short make you laugh, make you cry, make you think uh, stories. And there's a special deal going on if you buy all three. And those are available for you. If you've got a Bible, how many of you here in this congregation have got Bibles with you? Don't be intimidated if you haven't. But hold up your Bible if you have a Bible. Let me just do a quick check. A few Bibles being held up. That's good. A few iPhones and iPads. Excellent. Some of you are actually stealing Bibles from each other to, <laughs> to hold them up. First Kings chapter 19. First Kings chapter 19. And uh, I'm not sure which uh, translation you use here at Willow Park. Did I say Willow Creek earlier? Okay, that's good. I've been saying to myself for the last three hours, Willow Park, Willow Park. And I didn't want to mix it up and... Now I've just confused you all the more. But anyway, whatever translation uh, you happen to be reading, I'm, I'm using the NIV uh, this weekend. Follow along whatever translation you have. And if you have the amplified version, you can finish the reading tomorrow. That will be, that will be good. Elijah's just raised someone from the dead. Anyone done that this week? Just think back. Anyone raised the dead this week? No, waking your teenage son up in the morning doesn't count. And uh, he's just called down fire from heaven. Don't know whether anyone's done that this week. Pretty amazing pyrotechnics have been happening in his life. But now this happens. Now Ahab told Jezebel everything Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. So Jezebel sent a message to Elijah to say, May the gods deal with me, be it ever so severely, if by this time tomorrow I do not make your life like that of one of them. And Elijah was afraid and ran for his life. When he came to Beersheba in Judah, he left his servant there while he himself went a day's journey into the desert. And he came to a broom tree, sat down under it, and prayed that he might die. 
I've had enough, Lord, he said. Take my life. I'm no better than my ancestors. And then he lay down under the tree and fell asleep. All at once, an angel touched him and said, get up and eat. He looked around, and there by his head was a cake of bread baked over hot coals and a jar of water. He ate and drank and then lay down again. Then the angel of the Lord came back a second time and touched him and said, get up and eat, for the journey is too much for you. So he got up and ate and drank, and strengthened by that food, he traveled 40 days and 40 nights until he reached Horeb, the mountain of God. And there he went into a cave and spent the night. And the word of the Lord came to him. What are you doing here, Elijah? He replied, I've been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, broken down your altars, and put your prophets to death with the sword. I'm the only one left, and now they're trying to kill me too. And the Lord said, go out and stand on the mountain in the presence of the Lord, for the Lord is about to pass by. Then a great and powerful wind tore the mountains apart and shattered the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. After the wind, there was an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake came a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire came a gentle whisper. When Elijah heard it, he pulled his cloak over his face, went out and stood at the mouth of the cave. And a voice said to him, what are you doing here, Elijah? He replied, I've been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, broken down your altars, and put your prophets to death with the sword. I'm the only one left, and now they're trying to kill me too. And the Lord said to him, go back the way you came and go to the desert of Damascus. When you get there, anoint Hazael, king over Aram. Also anoint Jehu, son of Nimshi, king over Israel. And anoint Elisha, son of Shaphat, from Abel-Maholah to succeed you as prophet. Jehu will put to death any who escaped the sword of Hazael. And Elisha will put to death any who escaped the sword of Jehu. Yet I reserve 7,000 in Israel, all whose knees have not bowed down to Baal and all whose mouths have not kissed him. Uh, one of the reasons I'm delighted to be uh, here is because, frankly, I'm delighted to be anywhere. I am one of those sad men who gets lost everywhere he goes. Are there any other men here who share that problem? We have a GPS in our car that contains a devil woman who tells us <laughs> where we should be going. But despite that, I am frequently lost. Ladies, you'll be impressed to know that I am one of those men who is willing to concede defeat and stop and ask for directions. A few ladies liking me, a few men hating me right now. I do stop and ask for directions, but when, I'm, when I stop and ask for directions, it never works because I get, I get really bored with listening. And the person saying, second, second left at the light, third, and I think, oh, be quiet, this is rather numbing. I'd rather be lost right now. So I stay lost. I am lost so much I've got a reputation for it in my family. When our, our oldest grandson, Stanley, he's five, when Stanley was born, he turned breech the day before he was born. Gentlemen, that means he was facing the wrong way. And so he had to safely be born by cesarean section. And after, as a result of him facing the wrong way and having a C-section, after he was born, my son-in-law, Ben, came to me. He said, Jeff, I'm really worried that your grandson has inherited your sense of direction. <laughs> he said, there was only one exit out, and the kid managed to miss that. I am really, really rather troubled. Lost confused and bewildered. Take a snapshot of those emotions, if you will, and that's exactly what is going on in 
Elijah's life at this point. He's overwhelmed. He is fearful. Jezebel. Jezebel is a nasty piece of work. She's the Cruella de Vil of the Old Testament, this Jezebel. The New Bible Dictionary describes her as a forceful and domineering personality. It is a classic British understatement. It's like saying a nuclear explosion is a little bit loud. She is a, a nasty piece of work. She sends him a registered letter containing death, and he runs. He's exhausted. He's depressed. This is the man who had controlled the weather. This is the man who had raised the dead. This is the man who had called down fire from heaven. He is no lightweight, but he's depressed. And he's struggling. I, I know what that feels like. I spent uh, a year in clinical depression. I was a Christian leader. I was traveling, speaking, and preaching. I was writing books. And I spent a year in clinical depression. And some of you will know exactly what I mean when I say, not only did I feel bad, but I felt bad because I felt bad. And I was experiencing panic attacks, and I felt ashamed. And, and some of my friends came to me to try and sort me out. I think they'd previously been working for Job, and they came to me. <laughs> and, and some of them said, so, we hear you haven't got the victory. I said, well, apparently not. They said, what can we do to sort you out? Because some Christians always want to sort everyone out. And I was tempted to say, how about going away forever? That would be a great start. <laughs> but I felt really guilty because I felt bad. My, my brand of Christianity was reach for that tambourine and headbutt it. <laughs> Remember when I became a Christian at the age of 17, we sang some daft songs back then that kind of implied that we were always on the, ex on the edge of ecstasy all the time. I am H-A-P-P-Y. I am H-A-P-P-Y. I know I am. I'm sure I am. I am H-A-P-P-Y. <laughs> Another great theological weighty classic was, it isn't any trouble just to S-M-I-L-E. <laughs> no, it isn't any trouble just to S-M-I-L-E. If you pack up all your troubles and they'll vanish like a bubble, if you only take the trouble just to S-M-I-L-E. It's enough to make you V-O-M-I-T. <laughs> And I felt bad because I felt bad. And, and I didn't realize that actually the Bible is loaded with great women and men of faith who struggled emotionally. Jeremiah, Jeremiah, who got so low that he cursed the day of his birth and cursed the woman who gave him birth. So depressed did he get. Jonah, Jonah who, who stomped out of revival town and sat outside Nineveh sulking. The psalmist, one of the most frequent prayers of the psalmist is, why? How long? Where have you gone? And the psalmist is, the psalms are, are filled with uh, texture of both joy but also sadness. The apostle Paul, this trailblazer who gave us 13 books of the New Testament, 
And yet he writes to the contentious Corinthians. He says, we don't want you to be uninformed, brothers, about the hardship we suffered. We were under great pressure, far beyond our ability to endure, so that, listen to this, we despaired even of life. Indeed, in our hearts we felt the sentence of death. I believe that Jesus tasted depression. In the Garden of Gethsemane, he says, my soul is overwhelmed. The word barrio there, to be pressurized, to be depressed. We get the word barometer from that very word. Jesus knew that agony of the soul. And if you look throughout church history, you'll see some of the great names. William Cowper. William Cowper, who wrote that, that wonderful 18th century hymn, There is a fountain filled with blood. Drawn from Emmanuel's veins, sinners plunge beneath that flood, lose all their guilty stains. Majestic words, but Cowper was suffering a, a lifelong experience of clinical depression. Genu uh, General William Booth, the founder of the Salvation Army, uh, Charles Spurgeon, Martin Lloyd-Jones, many others. You see, depression... And sadness is spoken of in Scripture, and it's certainly spoken of in contemporary church history. So what can we learn from Elijah's experience as we share now this next three or four hours together? <laughs> I'm just kidding, but I was just testing then, just making sure you were there. I'm certainly going to keep to time. May I say that no one person's experience is the same as another's. It's so important that we get that. You know, those sermons that say, Here, here's four ways, beginning with the same letter, to get out of depression, they depress me more. They make me feel worse because actually every human being is unique and when we often say, I know how you feel, we don't. How many know that's true? that often we have no idea. We can empathize and sympathize, but we have no idea. But what can we, what can we learn? Well, well, first of all, we can learn that very often fear is the enemy of faith and can provide the roots, if you will, of, of depression. Fear was the Goliath that got to Elijah. He, he was a man used to being in control. I pronounce drought on the land. It happens. I call down fire from heaven. It happens. He was used to being in control. I remember once uh, flying to Oregon in the USA and, um, and renting a car, and I'd been flying for 20 hours or something. I was a bit jet-lagged and exhausted. I'd been on an airplane for a very long time eating food lovingly prepared by a demonized chef. So I... <laughs> I wasn't feeling very happy, and I, I went to the Hertz rental car counter, and, and the lovely lady there said, sir, there's some special instructions for this car. And, and you know when you're so tired, you just don't really listen. You go, yeah, uh-huh, uh-huh. And I said, fine, thank you very much. I drove the car to Dallas, Oregon, where my, our closest friends live, Chris and Jeannie. They're, he's a medical doctor. I was staying at their home. And it was now about 2 a.m. in the morning, and it was late at night. They knew I was coming in late, but because it was late, as I cruised up to their house in a crowded housing area, I just switched the engine off to cruise quietly up their driveway. And as I brought the car to a halt, it was then that the car alarm <laughs> that the lady at the Hertz rental car counter had tried to explain the function of 
this car alarm, which could be heard in Pluto, <laughs> started kicking in, playing hits from the 80s. It was unbelievable. And this thing is shrieking initially, woo, woo, and I'm, and I'm slapping the dashboard and, and desperately trying to turn it off. And I knew that all around that town, good Christians were waking up swearing. This was not good. <laughs> And, and, and suddenly, uh, well, not suddenly, after about a minute of this agony and lights going on around and I'm feeling terrible, and my friend, Dr. Chris, he came running out in his socks, not, not just his socks, he came running out. <laughs> and, he can, and now we're moving into, I don't know, the Beatles' greatest hits or something on the car alarm, and he jumps in the car, he said, quick, Jeff, turn that off. And I said, I don't know how. I said, let's get out of here. So I start the car, the alarm's still going, and having woken up that group of people, we then went on tour. We pull up to a petrol gas station, whatever. Someone called the police. This is so embarrassing. This police car comes out and cruises by, and me, minister, him, medical doctor, we ducked under the dashboard. And then he said, Jeff, is there a button on the key fob that would turn this off? And I said, yes. <laughs> he said, well, switch it off then. <laughs> and I did. And lo, great was the peace thereof. <laughs> Look at this. We need a drought, Elijah, a prophetic drought. Fine, done. Uh, we need this widow's son to be raised from the dead. Fine, got it. Uh, we need fire from heaven on Mount Carmel. Got it, done. Um, you got a letter from Jezebel. You see, fear took Elijah out. She, she sends this fearful message. She would have taken a self-imprecatory oath. May the gods deal with me, be it ever so severely. And his faith becomes a theory. He told the widow in Zarephath not to be afraid. Now he is. He panics. He runs. He's confused. He runs for his life and then prays for death. He's isolated, he dismisses his servant, he's immobilized, he just wants to sleep. Fear got this man down initially. Secondly, and we sung about it earlier, shame was the knockout punch. Fear got into his heart and then shame got to him too. He feels like a failure. He says, I'm no better than my ancestors. Stop right there, Elijah. Whoever said you were? But somehow shame has captured his soul. Martin Luther said most Christians have enough religion to feel guilty about their sins, but not enough to enjoy life in the spirit. We're pretty good at being ashamed. And we're, what we tend to do is define ourselves by our worst moments. Michelangelo, the great artist, had a back-breaking day on the scaffolding painting the ceiling of the Sistine Chapel 
had a terrible day. He came down and he wrote in his journal, I am not a painter. I think he was wrong, don't you? But what we do is we take our most shameful episode and then we name ourselves after it. And then we're very subjective, we Christians. We feel stuff and we we tend to think that our emotions are the barometer of our spirituality. They are not. They are not. And sometimes we have an unhealthy view of the conscience as if it's somehow infallible. The conscience is a beautiful gift, but it is not infallible. If you've been raised in a legalistic church, if you've been raised in an oppressive household, your conscience will be programmed to make you kick into shame fairly quickly. I remember when I first became a Christian, and I, I, I used to run forward to respond to every preacher's invitation. Didn't matter what the invitation was for, I'd be down at the front repenting of something. They were looking for a new leader of the Women's Aglow chapter, I'd be down at the front offering myself, you know. I repented of feeling happy one day. I did. I went forward and I actually said, God, I've been feeling really happy. I'm so sorry. That's why I'm catching up now. I repented of falling in love with Kay. I, I thought, I went down to the, I said, I can't possibly marry her. I've got to marry someone really ugly for you, Jesus. Some of you are looking at me, you're thinking, she believed that too, didn't she? But you see, someone said to me in the early moments or years of my Christian life, early months, they said, you know, the Bible says always let your conscience be your guide. All right, okay. If I feel bad, I must be bad. I thought I'd search for that verse, always let your conscience be your guide. Is it in the Sermon on the Mount? Is it in Proverbs? Uh, where is it? I finally tracked it down, ladies and gentlemen. It, always let your conscience be your guide. I found the source of that wisdom. It's Jiminy Cricket to Pinocchio. <laughs> Fear took Elijah out, and then he was smothered by shame. So what does God do for him? Takes him out for breakfast. It's remarkable. Can you imagine the angelic commission in heaven? The angel Derek, a junior angel, is summoned into the presence of the Lord. By the way, some of you are looking at your barbers going, where's Derek? Where's Derek? I made that up. It's all right. I just made that up. The angel, an angel is summoned before God and God says, uh, go and cook that guy breakfast. He is not rejected. He is not dismissed because of his sadness. God is faithful to him. And God says, the journey is too much for you through the angel. God has a sense of empathy and understanding. It, it's, look, it's not this. It's not, hey, straighten up. Sort yourself out. But instead, our God, look at this, is the glory and the lifter up of our heads. He comes, sends an angel, and he cooks him breakfast. Can I just say that because we suffer sometimes from difficult moods, some of us suffer from uh, actual depression in various degrees, 
not everything has a spiritual root. Sometimes we, this, we, we think, well, there, there, there must be something really spiritually wrong with me, or it's, it's all spiritual warfare. Satan is camping in my bathroom. <laughs> you ever met Christians like that? So everything's the devil's fault. I ran out of petrol, out of gas this week. Satan is attacking me. What would the Lord say to me? He would say to you, Phyllis, thine tank, O silly one. <laughs> Sometimes we get this impression that everything that happens is because of spiritual shadows. What did this guy need? He needed food. May I say, if your doctor says you need medication, take it. Take it. If your doctor says you need medication, not to dull the pain and somehow disguise the symptoms, but to help you manage navigation through that season. The angel cooked this guy breakfast. And be honest with God. Be honest with God. God said to to Elijah, what are you doing there? And do you notice the self-talk, the interior conversation of Elijah was repeated exactly the same twice. You see, that's what depression does. It gets you into a circuit and you just go around the same things over and over again. And God wants us to be honest with him though and share that interior conversation. Don't lie to him, he knows. Tell him how you feel. I've really enjoyed and appreciated our worship that we've shared in this service this weekend. And one of the reasons I've enjoyed it, I don't always enjoy it, is I know we're new friends, but can I say that? Is it all right to say that? Every now and again I go to conferences and we sing songs 47 times for an hour and a quarter. I sense that angels are sleeping. <laughs> and then the worship leader says, just as I'm losing the will to live, the worship leader says, do you know heaven's going to be just like this? Only longer. <laughs> but you know what often, what often happens is we lie collectively in worship. Because what we do is we sing songs about collective emotion. And I've so appreciated our worship here. Because a few weeks ago I sang a song that was collective lying. I sang that I could hear the brush of angels' wings. I couldn't. None of us could. But Fred, sitting six rows back, he's thinking, why can't I hear them? And what we did was have a time of collective musical lying together. That's why I believe that more worship should be about who God is and less about how we collectively feel. That's why I love it is well with my soul because it's not a statement of emotion, it's a statement of position of who we are in Christ. Be honest with God. Realize, realize that when you're low, you're probably not seeing straight. I'm the only one left, says Elijah. God says, no, there's 7,000. French novelist Anaïs Nin says, we don't see things as they are, but as we are. You don't always see straight. Enter the presence of God whatever you feel like when you're low. Would you notice that Elijah is parked in a cave humming, we shall not be moved. And a series of incredible 
supernatural reverberations come. But actually it's when the still small voice comes that he begins to step to the mouth of the cave. When you don't feel like worshipping, worship. When you feel like you're parked in a cave, affirm your faith in him anyway. That is why, my brothers and sisters, I totally believe in the local church. Because you see, what we do is we gather together, we huddle together weekend by weekend, and we huddle together for warmth. And in a weird and crazy world, we make our declarations of faith together. And our souls are nourished individually. Here is this man. He steps towards the cave. The still small voice of God speaks. Well, the last thing is this. And it's 11 minutes past seven in this service. I'd like our uh, musicians to come back, if you would, as I just uh, talk for a moment or two more. Uh, and it's simply this. Trust God when you don't understand him. Trust God when you don't understand him. Let me, let me point something out to you that is quite easy to miss. And you might think, what's this got to do with fog? What's this got to do with depression? Well, God told Elijah to do three things. He told him to anoint Haziel, king over Aram, to anoint Jehu, son of Nimshi, king over Israel, and to anoint Elisha, too. You can just quietly play for us if you would. That would be great. Thanks. Why did God do that? Well, Elijah didn't know at that point that this man, Haziel, king of the Arameans, he was going to be the answer to Elijah's prayers because the Arameans were going to be the agents of judgment against Israel to take out the evil Ahab and Jezebel. This was God's military strategy. Elijah didn't understand that. Why anoint Jehu, king over Israel? That seemed like crazy. Cruella de Vil is back in the palace issuing death threats, and God says to Elijah, anoint another king. I think that's going to irritate her. But why? Because God wanted Jehu ready to step in when Ahab and Jezebel were out of the way. God was anointing Jehu for that job. And then he said, anoint Elisha. Why did he do that? Because Elijah needed a friend. He needed breakfast and friendship. So what did Elijah do? In Elijah, the movie, he's riding off on his horse. The end appears on the screen. And he does what God tells him to do. In Elijah, the biblical narrative he did not anoint Hazel. He did not anoint Jehu. He did anoint Elisha. Ultimately, Ahab went, died. One of his sons came on the throne as bad as his dad. When he was taken out, one of his brothers, who was not quite as bad, but almost, he came on the throne. Thirteen years were wasted in Israel. Elijah's gone by now. Now it's Elisha's turn. What does he do? 
he anoints Jehu. Thirteen years late, the plan was fulfilled. Elijah couldn't see it, and often we can't. And we do each other a disservice, my brothers and sisters, when there are question marks and when there are blanks, and we try and fill in the blanks that God has not filled in. But I look around at you folks in this congregation, I'm sure it's true, in other campuses where you're watching this. I hear your pastor speak tenderly to you. And I know that some of you have stayed faithful to God. You've been hemmed in by question marks. Your emotions haven't matched your convictions. It's troubled you. Thank you for trusting. Thank you for trusting. Dare we believe that the God who says, well done, good and faithful servant, would say to some today, this weekend, thank you for trusting. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for this narrative, this story of empathy from you, of compassion from you. We thank you for the care that is demonstrated in the way that an angel of the Lord was dispatched to cook breakfast for this man, this, this prophet who was bewildered, overwhelmed. And as we now just quietly reflect upon your word, we pray that seeds of your word will find a place in our hearts. We pray for each other here in this service, for friends at Willow Park South and at Abbey and at Creekside, that you might be the glory and the lifter of their heads. And we thank you for your goodness in Jesus' name. If you agree with that, would you say amen?